We're in the middle of a, well not the middle, the beginning part of a series, A Walk with Christ to the Cross, and we're taking a little break from Matthew. However, we will be jumping around to the different Gospels the next couple of weeks simply because um, that's where the story of the cross is. The lesson we're going to look at today, the sorrow of the Last Supper and then moving on into the agony of Gethsemane, um, is a very dynamic story. It's a very incredible account of the facts that happened around uh, the leading up to the cross of Christ. And uh, it really begins with this whole account of the events that lead up to that gripping sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. Um, I want to ask you a couple of questions before we start this morning. And uh, Have you ever been confronted by another person, maybe because of a decision or an action or a statement that you made? You don't have to answer it. This is just a, kind of a, one of those questions you don't have to shout out. Or anything. Um, have you ever been confronted by another person? And then stop and ask yourself this question, who confronted me and why did they do it? Do you feel that this confrontation helped you um, reconsider your decision, your statement, or your action? Uh, do you think that the person who confronted you did it in the proper spirit? And you can kind of think about that a little bit. Because we're going to look at today a major confrontation between two individuals. Uh, confronting somebody... When we confront one another, it's not something that most people look forward to. Usually it's a painful thing. Usually you're confronting something about that's not a, a good thing. You're not saying, hey, great job! You know, that's, I mean, that's kind of confrontation, but that's a positive confronting of two people. We're talking about the negative here this morning. And it's always painful. Confronting one another can be not only essential to our Christian walk, but it's also beneficial to our Christian walk. And we're called to confront one another if we see something in our lives that's wrong or awry and we're going maybe down a road that the Lord would not have us to go down. We expect, we should expect, another brother or sister in Christ to come alongside us and confront us about that. We should approach a person with the attitude of concern, uh, helpfulness, um, their well-being at, at stake is what we're looking at. Um, we should receive confrontation with an attitude of appreciation, um, even a willingness to reconsider our decisions or our actions or our statements, whatever it might be. In the first half of our lesson today, we want to look at the proper way to confront someone and the wrong way to confront, to respond to somebody. Um, and God always grants us an opportunity to repent of our sin. And it's, it's, it's just an amazing thing, this story that we're going to look at today. And these next several weeks, we're, the text I'm using is kind of a combination of all the Gospels put together. Because all the Gospels kind of shed a little bit different light on the walk of Christ to the cross and His resurrection and everything. And usually you'll focus in on one gospel or whatever. I've kind of taken a different approach this year. I've kind of taken all four gospels 
and kind of put them together, uh, what we call harmony of the Gospels. So I've tried to list there in your outline the verses that we're going to be looking at, and you know you can try to follow along, but um, you know for the most part, it's it's a combination of all the Gospels into one text for us this morning. And this whole event starts on that Holy Week that leads up to the cross, probably Thursday, around 6 p.m. And the first part of our message is between 6 p.m. and, say, 11.30 p.m. And it has to do with the sorrow of the Last Supper. Now, we talked a little bit about last week where Jesus came from. You know, we said that He was God and He is God and that He humbled Himself and came to earth and we had to understand His exalted state before we could understand how He could be humbled. And we went over that last week. And we we realized that the main reason Jesus Christ came to earth was to die on the cross. To pay for man's sin. To pay for man's rebellion against God. That's His whole purpose. His entire life, His entire ministry led directly to the moments, the days that we're going to be covering the next couple weeks. And those days and those hours were horrendous. They were terrible. But he was victorious. Early in his ministry, Jesus informed his disciples over in Matthew 20, 28. We're all familiar with this verse. It says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve, right? And to give his life a ransom for many. As Christ's life drew to a close, He had experienced incredible, incredible blessing of the Father. He was doing miracles and thrones and people were following Him everywhere. Not that that mattered to Him, because it didn't. But that's the road that He was on. And as He began to get closer and closer to the end of His life, Jesus talked more directly about His death. That's usually not normal. Most people, when they get closer to death, they don't want to think about it. But not so with our Lord. Dying on the cross was no easy task for Him to perform. Even though He was God, it was not easy. And sometimes we fail to understand that He was fully human, fully God. And so the closer He came to that event, the more troubled His heart became. Have you ever had an event set out maybe a couple weeks and you know that it's kind of that's the line you got to cross that's the the deadline there's something coming up it could be a test in school it could be a paper it could be you got to confront an employee at work about something and let them go it could be maybe leaving a job or moving and as that thing begins to come closer and closer and closer that event in time that you're you might be looking forward to it but you're really not some, some of us try to put that out of our mind. We don't want to deal with it the closer you get to it. Well, not so with our Lord. He became more focused, and therefore he became more troubled in his heart because he knew the reason that he was here. He wasn't there for all the glory that he was seeing around him and all the people coming to him and being healed. and That, that wasn't his purpose. Well, let's begin Christ's walk to the cross at what is called the Last Supper. 
It would have been great to do this last week because we had communion, but it didn't work out in the schedule. And I thought I'd, we'd be here till three o'clock in the afternoon if I tried to cover everything we did last week and this week. So, but the last supper took place in an upper room in Jerusalem, as we read this morning, where Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And this wasn't any ordinary Passover supper. It was the last time that Christ ate with his disciples until after the resurrection. The very last time. And he had a lot to say to them during that evening. And the most dramatic moment of that evening during supper, I don't know about your house, but sometimes most of the dramatic moments come around the supper table. Because you're conversing, you're talking, you're dialoguing, and things come up. Well, that's what happened here. When Jesus revealed the ugly fact that one of His disciples would betray Him. And this betrayal would ultimately lead to His arrest, His crucifixion. And basically, here's the account of the betrayal announcement as Jesus warns of this betrayal to come. Like I said, this is a combination of these different verses you see there. So you can either just sit there and listen or you can turn to one of them and you'll probably see something of what I'm reading. But it's kind of a harmony of all those four Gospel accounts. When Jesus had said these things, and while they reclined at the table and were eating, He became troubled in spirit and He testified, saying, Verily I say unto you, that one of you will betray Me One who is eating with me. So the disciples were exceedingly grieved and they looked at one another, wondering of whom he spoke. And they began to ask one another who of them it might be that would do such a thing. And to say to him one by one, Lord, is it I? And he answered and he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping with me in the dish. Behold, moreover, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. And the Son of Man indeed is going as it has been determined, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It were good for that man had he not been born." Then Judas, the betrayer, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, It is as you have said. Now there was reclining close to Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, John. So Simon Peter beckoned to him to ask who it might be of whom he spoke. And he, leaning against Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, is it I? And Jesus answered, It is he, he it is, to whom I shall give the morsel when I have dipped it. And on dipping the morsel, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the morsel, then entered Satan into him. Jesus said therefore to him, what you are doing, do quickly. Now none of those at the table knew why he spoke to him. For some thought that since Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, we'll go buy things for our feast. 
Or that maybe he was telling them to go out and give something to the poor. Immediately, therefore, after receiving the morsel, Judas went out and it was night. Incredible. You can just kind of cut the tension with a knife if you really close your eyes and picture yourself sitting around this table with the Lord and the twelve disciples. We need to understand the setting of this drama that we see playing out before us this morning at the Last Supper. I mean, some of this may sound a little strange. I mean, you know, you're thinking, well, why, you know, if he told Judas that, yeah, it's, it's you, why didn't the other ones hear? You have to understand how they reclined at the table at that time. It was a far different way. They didn't go in and pull out a chair and sit down and, you know, pass the potatoes around. That's not how they did it. Begin with, the table was very low. It was very low. Maybe a, not even probably a foot off the ground. And the guests would recline around the table. And they would usually lean on their left arm with their head, kind of prop themselves up as they're laying down so they could have their free, their right arm free to eat. And so you can imagine if you had guys laying around a table, their bodies kind of maybe turned out from the table a little bit because you don't want the other guy's feet in your face while you're eating, obviously. Especially not back in those days. And so they're, they're kind of doubled up, you might say. And the head of one disciple is almost on the chest of the other. They're kind of just kind of layered out that way around this table, all 12 of them. And they'd lay on pillows and they'd rest their head on the left hand and eat usually with the right hand and just kind of went around that way. So each person had his head on the chest of the person usually to his left. We want to consider some things this morning. The first thing is Christ's sad announcement here. I mean, this is supposed to be a joyous time. This is supposed to be a time of you know, Passover meal. It's a, it's a, it's a, enjoyed a calm, joyous atmosphere. Everything was going fine. Until Jesus opened his mouth and had this emotion-packed announcement that he made. In Mark 14, 18, and in uh, John 13, 21, it says, When Jesus had said these things, and while they reclined at the table and were eating, he became troubled in spirit. And he testified, saying, Verily, verily, I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. <clears throat> that language kind of indicates to us that something awful grabbed a hold of Christ's spirit. And it almost shook him, you might say, deep within his own being. And it caused him this intense, you might say, mental, emotional, spiritual pain. And all the joy of the dinner was gone. All the calmness was gone. And the Bible says that he was troubled in spirit. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been encountered with maybe a, an, an event or a, a news or a shocking announcement and it just, it just cuts you right to the core and you don't know what to do? You're just kind of numb at hearing these words. No doubt the trouble feeling that Jesus was experiencing showed in his facial expression he was only human and it probably even was revealed in the tone of his voice the way he spoke and it was this painful announcement that one of his very own disciples was going to turn against him and not only that but he was going to work with Satan to deliver him into his enemies I mean it was tremendously 
horrible, saddening news that one whom he loved so much would desert him for no reason. It was also bothersome to him, no doubt, that Satan was about to consume his betrayer. Christ knew what was going on. To move that betrayer to do such an evil thing. Have you ever had a close friend to betray you? How do you feel about it? Probably not very good. Have you ever come upon something that was just intensely evil? What was your reaction to it? That's what Christ was dealing with. The news that Jesus was going to be betrayed by one of the men in the room hit the disciples probably like a ton of bricks. They were absolutely shocked. They probably choked on the food they were eating. It's like, what did he just say? And they were hurt by Christ's statement. For this is the last thing that they ever expected in him. These, these are guys that left everything to follow Christ. Every one of them. And they were stunned into silence. All the joyous atmosphere was just sucked out of that room. And they probably just had blank faces and they stared at one another. As this hush fell over the room, each man began to look at the others and find some trace of guilt on their face to say, it's him, it's him. Who is it? And they probably began to calculate in their mind who the traitor might be. But the disciples couldn't come to any conclusion. It wasn't that obvious. Nor is it ever that obvious. Satan's called an angel of light. He's a deceiver. So they began to discuss among themselves. They couldn't figure it out just for what it was. So they began to talk to each other. And they began to discuss among themselves who the guilty one might be. And as this discussion progressed, we've read some of it, each disciple was hit with the awful realization that was it him? Would I do such a thing? And when Christ had first announced that his betrayer was in that room, each of them had been confident of their own innocence. They all thought, that's not me, it's not me. But as the time grew on, I think they began to question themselves and they began to shrink into that area of doubt. Could I do it? Would I do it? And so one by one, the guests at the table, the Bible says, began to ask Jesus, Lord, is it I? The Bible says He doesn't answer them. (laughs) He doesn't let anybody off the hook. And they approached Him one by one, Lord, is it I? And Christ remained silent until the last disciple had approached Him with that crucial question. He wanted each person in that room to take time to examine himself as to his own commitment to the Lord. Stop and think about it. If you were in that room that night, what weakness or weaknesses in your life could maybe have cast a shadow of doubt in your heart Maybe a little guilt to fall over you and it prompted you to ask Him, Lord, is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Because we all have that. We all have weaknesses in our life. We all have some area in our life that's questionable. 
Finally, Jesus broke the silence by describing in detail who the traitor was. Matthew 26, 23 to 25, and Luke 22, 21 to 22. He answered them and he said, It's one of the twelve. One is dipping with me in the dish. Behold, moreover, the hand of the one betraying me is even on the table. And the Son of Man indeed is going as it has been determined. Notice that. This isn't a mistake. Christ was predetermined to go to the cross even before he took on a human body, as it is written of him. But woe to that man whom. By the, by the one whom he has betrayed, it were good for that man had he never been born. Up until this time, Judas had stayed undetected as the traitor. No one knew it was him. Amazing. Think about it. A lot of questions probably went through Judas's head as he's laying there around the table with everybody else. He fooled everybody. Except Jesus. He probably asked himself, I wonder how much Christ knows about this betrayal that I'm about to, this plan I'm about to unwrap. What will he do with that information? Will he embarrass me in front of everybody here? Will they kill me? What will happen? Will Christ tell everyone at the table that I'm the betrayer? If you look at that table, Jesus and Judas must have been reclining close to one another at the table because it says Jesus, Judas leaned over and whispered those dreadful and awesome words to Jesus, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus says, it is as you have said. But obviously nobody else heard. Because <laughs> they still didn't get it. The cold reality of the fact was brought into the open between Christ and Judas. You can only imagine Christ looking into the eyes of Judas when he said those words. It is as you have said. He clearly confirmed to Judas what he already knew was true. He was the betrayer. He wasn't fooling anybody. Since Judas and Christ were reclining so close together, few if any of the disciples, like I said, heard anything. Who was this guy? Who was this man, Judas Iscariot? We don't know a lot about him. What weaknesses did he have in his life that caused him to betray the Son of God? I mean, you think about it. He was there with everybody else as Christ was doing all these miracles. He was along the ride with every, everybody else when Christ was raising people from all that stuff. He saw everything. Heard the teaching of Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us much about the background of Judas Iscariot, but we can piece some things together about his weaknesses that led him to be the betrayer of Christ. <coughs> I wrote some things down there. First of all, Judas, just background, he was the treasurer for the disciples. He was the one that oversaw the, 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 money, the group's money. No doubt as Christ ministered, people would give them food or give them money to help them on their way. They needed a treasure. Well, Judas was in it. What does that tell you? He was a trusted person. I mean, the last time I checked, you don't give your money over to somebody that you can't trust. That wouldn't make any sense. There was no doubt that he was a leader with strong influence among the disciples. But the sad thing is that he joined up with Christ for selfish reasons. 
And he probably figured, hey, Jesus is going to come and he's going to trample over all the religious and the political obstacles that are standing in our way and he's going to set up a kingdom here on earth. And since I'm the treasurer, if Jesus is the king, you know, maybe I'll end up being the prime minister. He had totally wrong motives for following Christ. He followed Jesus because of his own selfish ambition. Instead of humbling himself and seeing the king for who he was, the true and the living God, he was all concerned about what he was going to get out of this. You think, well, why would he follow him anyway? Well, you stop and you think early on in, in the ministry of Jesus, he probably looked at Christ's ministry and thought, hey, this, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to fulfill all these expectations that I have. He's going to set up this earthly kingdom. Because Christ didn't really indicate that that wasn't true. As a matter of fact, great crowds were just following after Him, hoping that He would declare Himself as the Messiah. He was healing the sick and preaching powerful, moving sermons. And the religious leaders, although they were in opposition to Him, seemed powerless to stop Him. They couldn't do anything. Because they had so many people following Him. So the early years of Christ's ministry must have pleased Judas very much, even though he had wrong motives in following him. But surely, I think after some time, things began to change. And Judas was aware of the changes, and he was not a happy camper. For example, Jesus began to say things that offended his large following. If you're trying to build a kingdom on earth, what's the worst thing that you could do is say something that would offend somebody? Look at the, 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 the recent political race. You know, they're all things to all people. Why? Because they don't want to offend anybody because they want everybody to vote for them. doesn't matter what party they're from. That's what they do. That's what they say. Well, Jesus began to say things that would offend people. And that didn't make sense to Judas. Stop and think about it. John the Baptist was beheaded by the Romans. And Jesus Christ didn't do anything. Nothing. And he's going to set up a kingdom here on earth? Judas began to realize, wait a minute, what's going on here? This is slipping out of my grip. Rather than amassing an army, Jesus spent much of his time with these 12 guys that were nothing more than a bunch of fishermen. And Judas thought, boy, this doesn't look like a good team to really set up this kingdom on earth. You know, you've got to get some heavyweights in here. And then Jesus began to talk much about his quickly approaching death. And that kind of threw the whole thing into the dumper for, for Judas. And Judas, it would appear, became increasingly bitter over the fact that Christ was not going to become this earthly king and set up his kingdom so that he could be the prime minister, you might say. He followed Christ for the wrong reason. What was his deep-seated problem here? You can see it throughout Scripture over in John 6, 25-71. That's one area. He joined up Christ with wrong motives. He had a problem with greed. He had a problem with greed. He loved money and all that it brought with it. His bitterness toward Christ along with his greed finally led his betrayal of Christ. And you can see it in a very clear way. His greed, if you turn over to John chapter 12. <coughs> John chapter 12, I'll just read verses 1 to 9 for us. 
Then six days after, before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Incredibly expensive stuff. But one of his disciples, guess who? Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor. See, his heart's being revealed. But because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was to put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Now a great many of the Jews knew that uh, he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom had been raised from the dead. See, he had the wrong motivation in following Christ, which led him to bitterness, and it was completely controlled by greed. And after that incident, I think, with Mary and the expensive perfume, I think right there, Jesus somehow decided to go to the Jewish leaders and say, you know, I'm going to help them out. This is ridiculous. Maybe I can get some money out of them. And he offered his services to betray Christ. And the Jewish leaders obviously needed Christ or needed Judas to help in identifying Christ. They could recognize Christ during the day, but at night over there, you know, it's not like you, you got street lights and everything. It's very dark. It would be hard to locate somebody at night, identify that individual out of a group of even 12 and say, okay, we're going to arrest this person. So they needed Judas to help them. He knew where they hung out. He knew where they went. And at night... Usually Christ would leave Jerusalem and, and return to Bethany a few miles away. And so it was difficult for the, the Jewish leaders to understand where he was and, and where he spent his time. And Christ or Judas knew exactly where he could find Christ and he could point him out in a crowd. And so Judas had a service to sell to the Jewish leaders and they were interested in it. They were pleased when bitter Judas came and offered them his services. Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16 says, that Judas came to them. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? It's all greed. He's all focused on money. And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. It's not a whole lot. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Judas was looking for the best possible time to deliver, deliver Jesus over to the Jewish leaders. And you look here, the next point, at Christ's final appeal to Judas. All this is going on, and Jesus knows exactly where it's going, where it's headed. At last, they're eating. He's eating with Christ at the Last Supper. And this bitterness, just greed and everything just welled up in his heart. It all came to a head in, in Judas's life. Probably events were happening so fast around Judas that he had to make a decision quickly what to do with Christ. 
What am I going to do? The critical decision to betray him or not to betray him. It was still his decision. And it became more intense when John asked Christ a most pointed question at the table in John 13, 23-30. It says, Now there was one reclining close to Jesus' bosom of one of His disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. He said, leaning against Jesus' breast, He said, Lord, is that I? So the questioning begins. And He dipped the morsel, gave to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. It says, after the morsel, then Satan entered into him. And Jesus says, what you're going to do, go and do quickly. The whole complete moment of truth was pushed on Judas. What are you going to do? What's your decision? I mean, Peter's curiosity got the best of him, and he decided that he, he must know who the betrayer was, so he began to ask John, hey, you know, ask him if it's who is it? <laughs> we want to know. And Christ quietly but definitely answered John's question in a very graphic and touching way, using a very familiar Jewish custom. He took a cracker or a piece of bread, whatever it was, and he dipped it into whatever sauce they had there that was on the table, and then he offered it to Judas. See, culturally, this is a Jewish way of reaching out to a person, to offering them friendship, to offering them a toast. Remember when we were over in Turkey, you'd go into a shop to just look around. They're there with a cup of tea and, and some cookies. Oh, come on in, here's some tea. At first it's like, oh, I don't want any tea, you know, I'm just looking around. And that's kind of an insult if you turn the stuff down, and it's good. Apple cider tea or whatever, and they have some cookies, and they just want you to feel home and you know, hopefully you'll buy something. It's not to make you feel guilty. You can go in and say, I'm not gonna buy anything, they'll still offer you the tea. It's just a hospitable kind of a cultural thing. And that's what Jesus was doing. It's a remarkable way. It seems that Christ was offering Judas one more chance to repent of his evil plan and commit himself to Christ. Out of this whole thing at the Last Supper, and that's not the only time he really reached out to him. He reached out to him probably four other times. John 13, 10 to 11. Second appeal is found in, in John 13, verse 21, over in Matthew 26, 24, and John 13, 26. Different areas. Christ continually reached out to his betrayer. Hey, just don't do this. You know, repent, turn, turn from your sin. But there's some applications, I think, that we can learn from this incredible, dramatic moment in the upper room at the Last Supper. And I think, first of all, the story of Judas in the Last Supper teaches us that no one can manipulate Jesus Christ. He cannot be manipulated. Judas thought that if he would just team up with Jesus Christ, somehow Jesus would make him a leader in his earthly kingdom. <laughs> and Judas was badly mistaken. See, if a person is to find the reality of Jesus Christ, he must come to Christ on Christ's terms. You don't come to Christ on your own terms. You can't do it. Well, what are the terms then? If you want to come to Christ, what are His terms? See, to become a follower of Christ, you know, it doesn't guarantee you popularity. It doesn't guarantee you money. It doesn't guarantee you fame or security or health, wealth, whatever you might say. 
Jesus won't be used by like that. He, that's not what he's there for. Clearly, Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, what it meant to be his followers. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, well, what do you have to do? The very first thing, you have to deny yourself. Let him deny himself and then take up his cross and follow me. Well, we don't like to hear that, but that's what Christ said. When's the last time someone came up to you and said, gee, you know, well, what do I do to, to, to become saved and follow Christ? Usually we whip out a trial here, just pray this thing or do this or do that. Maybe we should try what Christ is saying. You know what? If you want to follow Christ, first of all, you have to deny yourself. You have to realize that you're utterly lost. You have to deny your own rights, your own wants, your own desires. And then, after you deny yourself, you have to take up the cross. It's not going to be easy. And then you have to follow Christ. We find that following Christ only works when we come to Him with the right motives and desires. We all know people who maybe early in their teenage years or whenever their childhood or even adult life have come and maybe come to an evangelistic crusade or, or contacted you and said, hey, you know, I got saved. And, oh, you know, there's all this joy. And then after, you know, maybe a year or maybe two years, you know, they're back doing the same thing, the same life of sin. They don't go to church anymore. They don't have any interest in, in Christ at all. That's somebody who came to Christ for the wrong reason, the wrong motivation. They truly weren't repentant. They truly weren't saved. If we attempt to follow Christ selfishly, like Judas, we'll always be disappointed, we'll always be frustrated, because that's not where we find salvation. So Jesus won't be manipulated. Secondly, the story here tells us that no one can fool Jesus. You can't fool Jesus. You may be sitting here this morning and fooling everybody else, but you're not fooling the Son of God. Judas was this tremendous play actor. I mean, he had everybody fooled. All the disciples thought that Judas was just as dedicated to the Lord as, he, as they were. Even when Judas left the Last Supper to do that wicked act of betraying Christ, the disciples didn't even understand what was going on. You may be sitting here and say, well, if I was there, I would have picked them right out of the crowd. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because Satan is the master deceiver. He's not going to make it that obvious. That's why it's so important to make sure, first of all, that you're in the faith. Don't be deceived for a second by Satan's lies. Oh, yeah, you're doing pretty good. You come to church and do all this stuff. And, you know, you read your Bible. And, oh, you go visit people. You do all these things. If that's the basis of your salvation, brothers and sisters, you're not saved. You're basing it on works which may be good, but they're not going to save you. <clears throat> There's only one work upon which we can base our salvation, and that's the work of Christ on the cross. And the only way that we can come to God is not by works, but it's only by grace. Through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, that only makes sense. Can you imagine what heaven would be like if we got saved by our works? I don't know about you, but I'd be up there going, yeah, I did this and I did that. And, you know, that's how I got saved. You know, I did all this stuff. And you'd be saying, hey, I did this. And I... We'd all be up there boasting about what we did. 
There'll be no boasting in heaven. Only worship and thanksgiving for the grace of God that has come into our lives. Judas did an excellent job of fooling everyone about his sincerity, about his commitment, about his honesty, everything except Jesus. You know what? You may be fooling everybody here this morning, but God knows everything and He can probe into every man's thoughts, your motives. He's never fooled by play acting. He's never fooled by just somebody doing the right things, going along with the crowd. It's impossible to fool God. In Psalm 139, it tells us clearly it's impossible. It says, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. (laughs) You understand my thoughts afar off. You scrutinize my path and my laying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, You know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. You can't fool God. You may be sitting here even fooling yourself. You can't fool God. If you haven't come to Christ, you need to bow your heart before Christ this morning and say, God, help me. I'm a sinner. I need your grace. Third thing here, the story of the Last Supper tells us that a loving Christ always reaches out to man until the very end. See, Jesus knew when He was even picking, selecting the twelve disciples (coughs) that Judas was going to betray Him. He knew this. It didn't surprise Him. He knew it all along. Because He knows everything. He's God. And yet He continued to reach out to Him. Right down to the very end of the Last Supper, Jesus reached out to Judas with the opportunity to reconsider, to repent from his bitter and sinful ways. And what did Judas do? He refused. And he turned his back on the loving Jesus Christ and he sold him for a few pieces of silver. Terrible mistake. There's never been another who has had the love and patience (coughs) excuse me, that Christ had for Judas. Incredible. This kind of love and patience could only come from God Himself. And it's available for you here this morning. That's the event of the Last Supper. You see how Christ reached out to Judas. You see how Judas was deceived. Are you deceived this morning? Move on into the Garden of Gethsemane. Probably Thursday night, 11.30 to 1 a.m. As the night of the Lord's Supper progressed, Judas is gone. He's out doing his evil deed. Christ became almost just overwhelmed, submerged in pressure, the Bible tells us. And ultimately, that late night in the Garden of Gethsemane, that pressure became almost unbearable. You pick up the story over in John 14.31. 
And Jesus had just promised His men that He would send the Holy Spirit to them and give them a special kind of peace. He tells them, Arise and let us go from here. And Christ left the upper room and with His men He began to walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what awaited Him there. A couple things we see in the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. We can see, we can seek to understand Christ's love and His greatness First of all, as he coped with the weaknesses of his closest friends. These are guys that he's, he spent you know, ministry time with, just really close. And the Gospels unfold this story. Matthew 26, 30-35. Mark 14, 26-31. And Luke 22, 39. It says, "...they sung a hymn. He came out and went, as his custom was, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be caused to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after my being raised up, I will go before you in the Galilee. But Peter. (laughs) Don't you just love Peter? He's always the first one to shout out something or say something. But Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, yet not I. I will never be made to stumble. Can you feel the arrogance? The pride? And Jesus said to him, Fairly I say to you, Peter, that today, even tonight, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But the Word of God says, but Peter said to him even more vehemently, (laughs) with more commitment, with more just passion, even if I must die with you, I will not at all deny you. And you know what? We criticize Peter for his words. But you notice at the end of that verse, it also says, in like manner also spoke what? All the disciples. They were all committed to Christ. What do you mean we're going to stumble? We're not going to stumble. And they were sitting there nodding their heads. That's right. You tell him, Peter. We're here with you. We picked Peter out of the crowd because he's a big mouth. But all the disciples are there saying, yep, that's right. See, if there was ever a time when Jesus Christ needed the support of His disciples, it was right now. And on the surface, they were saying, yep, we're there with you. And as he walked toward the garden, he knew that less than 24 hours that he would be facing the cruelest, loneliest, brutalest death in all of history. And he also knew that his disciples were so weak that they wouldn't be there for him. They couldn't support him in his hour of need. They knew He knew that they would fail him. And Jesus graciously prepared his disciple, Peter, for recovery. Knowing that he was going to fail, but he wanted him to have a hope for his future. You know, sometimes when we're facing a terrible crisis in your life and you knew that all your friends were going to desert you just as you needed them most, I mean, what would you say to them? If you knew that was going to happen, as they walked along there in the dark, Christ broke the silence by saying to His disciples, all of you will be caused to stumble because of Me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And then He said this, but after My being raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. 
See, Jesus told His disciples both bad news and good news about the next few hours, about the next few days. And it's funny how God does that. The bad news was all of them would become so upset and bothered over what was about to happen to their leader, Christ, Jesus, that they would flee from Him in all directions. I mean, they just didn't you know, say, okay, well, I think I'll just stand back here. It says they ran. They hid. His arrest and His trial would be so traumatic that disciples would abandon the one that they're yielding allegiance to in this conversation. The good news... The good news was that he was going to give them hope. And he, he kind of indicated here. And he said, you know what? I'm going to rise from the dead. And I'm going to see you again in Galilee. They didn't probably get it. They probably didn't understand. But Peter and his disciples, and the disciples there, make the trial of Christ even worse, you might say. They don't really help him out in this. It must have been difficult enough for Jesus to tell his disciples that they were headed for disappointment and failure. But, but Peter almost adds insult to injury. Peter, who was proud and had this tendency to speak without even thinking sometimes, he reacted to Christ's prediction immediately and emphatically by contradicting Him. You're contradicting the Son of God? What's wrong with this picture? He loved Christ, but he really failed to see his own weaknesses. And sometimes that's where we're at as believers. God says, you know what? I want you to do this. I want you to focus on this area of your life. And yeah, no, no, I, know, I know better. I need, to, I need to get this stuff arranged. And God's saying, no. <laughs> you know, I know what's best for you. You don't have a clue. I created you. Focus on what I want you to focus on. All this other stuff will come in time. At my time. I mean, here's Peter arguing with Jesus. I mean, do you think that would be a, maybe a, kind of a major insult to him? I think it would be. He was making this major blunder in front of the whole group. He was far too sure of himself. And he actually even, you know, when he, when he got to down to it, that, that, you know, hey, they're going to fail you, but I'm not. So it's like, hey, I'll throw everybody else off the boat, but I, you know, I'm going to hang in here. And Jesus continued to remain calm. He continued to remain loving. He openly confronted Peter about his arrogance concerning his loyalty, he said, you know what, today, before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. See, Jesus made it clear, just like he made it clear about Judas, he made it clear to Peter that before the next morning, you're going to fail me miserably on three occasions, not just one. And Peter would prove to be a liar about his commitment to Christ. Now, at this point in the conversation, Peter had to have felt his personal pride, his allegiance to Jesus being questioned, being threatened. And he even becomes more insistent. And he says, even if I have to die, I will not at all deny you. See the pride, the arrogance coming out in this? He refused to believe what Christ said to him. Twice in the conversation, he contradicted openly what Christ said would happen. Do we do that? Do we do that with God? God indicates that He wants us to do something. He wants us to grow in an area. And we contradict Him? I bet you we do. I know I do. 
I don't want to do that. I'd rather focus on this area. This is funner. This is more rewarding. This is, you know. And God says, hey, I created you. I know what's best for you. Stop it. He does it in a very loving way. We can not only see that that Christ reached out to him that way, we can also seek to understand Christ's love and greatness at the Garden of Gethsemane when we see this awful agony that Christ went through while he was there. Finally, picture, they're, they're getting to the Garden of Gethsemane, they're there. And it says, Jesus came with them across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, a place called Gethsemane into which he and his disciples entered. When he had arrived at that place, he said to them, sit here for a while and I'm going to go yonder and pray. The garden probably was, may have been owned by a follower of Jesus. We don't know. It was a large plot of, of a grove of, of trees there and was probably surrounded by a, a stone wall of some sort for some privacy. And Jesus obviously was familiar with this, so he must have visited this before to, to seek some quietness and privacy. And this night, Jesus led the eleven disciples, Judas had gone to betray him, to the edge of this garden. And then, leaving eight of the men there, he took Peter, James, and John, the Bible says, deeper into the quiet garden. It says, and and, uh, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and amazed and deeply distressed, it says. Then he, he, he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Pray that you enter not into temptation. See, as we've seen, for some reason, Jesus took His three closest disciples into the garden and He literally was going to allow them to see Him go through this immense suffering. We learned that as Jesus and His three disciples walked further into the garden, this extreme suffering, it says, began to just fall upon Him. It says he began to be sorrowful and amazed and deeply distressed. That word amazed, it means to be filled with shock, to be filled with utter astonishment about what is going to happen. I mean, the the, the language here almost seems to indicate that he was so amazed that his hair could have stood on end and his skin could have begun to crawl. Something caused that awful feeling to come upon him. He became deeply distressed, it says. He was overwhelmed with the sorrow of his emotions. And it it almost indicates that he couldn't take it anymore. He was at the end of his rope. The prospect of dying on the cross with our sins on him was so intense that it almost killed him right here in the garden. Physically. Physically. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrow even on to death. I feel like dying. I mean, Christ's awful agony in the garden as He made this final decision with the Father to go through with the crucifixion, to go through with His offering Himself, that's, that's what it's about. In Mark 14, 35-36, it says, He went a little further, He fell on the ground and He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. Looking for a way out. Saying, hey, if there's another way, I'm, I'm, I'm open to listening right now. And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. In other words, God, I know that You could, you could, you could kind of just create something else here. 
Because humanly speaking, I am not looking forward to this. He says, take this cup away from me. In other words, do I really have to go through this pain and anguish for all these people? They're not even here to support me. (laughs) Nevertheless, he says this, not what I will, but what you will. See, that's the key, you might say, to the Christian life. That's the key to being being successful in your Christian walk. Not what I will, God, but what You will. If you start there, you, you can't help but be in God's will. In a sense, Gethsemane was a place where Christ made the final decision humanly about going to the cross. Because Jesus is both God and man. We talked about that. And at the garden, because of His real humanity, He naturally resisted the hour of suffering that was going to come upon that body physically. It also tells us here that Jesus was not a puppet on a father's strings. God wasn't up there just, you know, okay, do this, do this. Jesus is not a robot. He has a humanness about Him. And He's dealing with this in a very real way. See, we think, well, he was God. Sure, he can just do this and walk through this with no problem. No, remember last week, he was God in a bod and he, he, he experiences everything that we experience. Can you imagine that you were going to die a horrible death in a matter of hours? What would be going through your mind, humanly speaking? He was faced with a yes or no decision about going to the cross. Here he was. He never sinned. But this trial of the cross was the most demanding, probably, test of his obedience to the Father. And painfully, and probably with absolute heartbreak, he made the decision upon his knees in prayer. Another good example for us. When we're making decisions in life, are we just out there, you know, doing what looks good logically in our mind? Or are we stopping and asking God, you know what, what do you want in this? What do you want me to do in this? I know this logically makes sense, but God, I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. I know this makes sense financially for me, but God, I want to do the right thing. And deep in this inner struggle and pain, Christ put His case to the Father. We we can't even begin to grasp what Christ went through, what He went through His mind as He prayed. He must have been asking himself some hard questions about whether or not he should proceed, how to do this, in all these things. In his humanity. Could he bear the utter hell of being forsaken by his Father? Did it seem right to have all of our sin, these people that probably don't even care, placed on him who never sinned once? Was mankind worth suffering for? To save in the first place. We don't know what went through his mind, but he asked the Father a very simple question. He wanted to know if there was a way, any way, for a man to be saved other than by his having to go to die on the cross. His whole being cringed at the thought of going to the cross, but his whole being cringed even more at the thought of not doing the Father's will. And so he concludes, he says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And the disciples, they're obviously no help to him at all. He left them for a time of prayer and said, Hey, pray for me, will you? And the Bible says that he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? So you could not watch with, watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, all week long, they had not been sleeping well. They had all this stuff going on and people following Christ and all this. I mean, a lot of the good stuff. And now their lack of sleep had caught up with them. And even the sorrowful last few hours with Christ had drained them of their strength. I'm sure the emotions of the Last Supper, all that stuff. And they wanted to help Him. But they couldn't. They couldn't just find the strength to do it. And here we see Christ alone and deep in struggle. He returned to His time of prayer with the Father. In the time he prayed even more intensely, and the tension on Jesus as he faced the cruel cruel cross began to take this physical toll. So again, a second time, he went off and he prayed, saying, My Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, if this cannot pass from me unless I drink of it, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared unto him an angel from heaven. He was so beaten down that an angel from heaven had to come and strengthen him, the Bible says. And being in agony, he prayed the more earnestly. And it says that his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling upon the ground. And you say, wow, that must be a a word picture. No, that's not a word picture. That's a medical condition. There's a condition in life that you can get so stressed out, so physically bent out of shape that you're... Your, your, your blood vessels begin to uh, expand so much and they begin to break and they mix with your sweat glands and you actually sweat blood. It's a known physical condition. That's how intense he was in this situation, the suffering. No person has ever struggled like Christ did here in this agony in Gethsemane. Three times he went back to his disciples only to find them sleeping every time. And three times he went back to his father only to find himself in agony once again, realizing there's no way out of this. I have to do this. At some point during that time, he said, okay, let's do it. Let's go. He decided he would go through with his most painful experience in history. He would allow himself to be crucified and have sins of mankind laid upon him, even though he never committed any sin whatsoever. He was always determined to do the Father's will. But now his will was like iron as he left the garden and he headed for the crucifixion. The decision had been made. And he said to his disciples, Behold, the hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinner. Arise, let us be gone. My betrayer is at hand. A couple things we can learn from the Garden of Gethsemane as we close. First of all, we can learn of the absolute humiliation that Christ went through in that garden. I mean, stop and think. If you had been walking in the garden on that night and you saw Christ in torment... Would you have thought that He was God? You think of how humiliating it must have been for Him. We can also learn that sin is no small thing to Jesus. It's a small thing to us sometimes, but it's not a small thing to Christ. Jesus Christ looked right into the face of sin and its consequence, and He found it to be terrifying. And he was not a weak person. But when he saw how sin and its awfulness, it almost killed him, the Bible says. 
thirdly, we can see that Jesus thought we were worth the suffering that He went through. See, He made a final decision about us in the garden. He decided that in spite of all our rebellion, in spite of all our indifference to Him, we were worth saving. We were worth dying for. The Bible talks about this in Hebrews 12 too. It says, "...fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God." Why did Christ endure the the cross? Not because it was fun. (laughs) Not because He had to. But He loved us so much that He endured it. It says the joy set before Him. The joy set before Him is the salvation of those who come to faith in Christ. Jesus clearly made a decision about you and me in the garden. It was probably the most difficult and important decision anyone has ever made in history. He set His mind to suffer in our place. And now Jesus asked mankind to make a decision about Him. He asked us this morning here to make a decision about Him. And you know what? In turn, it is the most important decision each of us will ever make. What are you going to do with this Jesus Christ? Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we thank You. Father, we thank You for Your Word and how it outlines for us Your grace as we see the suffering that Christ went through, as we see all that He endured for us to pay the penalty of our sin, Lord, it was no easy task. Being God didn't make it any easier because He was fully human as well. We think back of how we learned how He reached out to Judas to the very end. And Jesus, You're still reaching out to us if there's someone here this morning who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, don't think you're just guaranteed another tomorrow. Don't think you're guaranteed another week. One of two things could happen. Christ could come back right now. If your faith is not found in Christ, you would not be taken away, as the Bible says, with the church. You'd be left here. Or you could die. We're all going to die someday. And to die without your salvation secured in Christ is not a flippant thing. It's a horrible thing. It says that you would be condemned to an eternity in hell apart from God. Utter darkness. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Torment, a place where the body is burned but it's never burned up. It's not a fun place. But once again, the question is what will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you commit your life to Him? Will you cry out to Him? Will you deny yourself and your pride? Come to Him wholeheartedly? He wants you to. He died for you. And as believers, we need to take this message. We don't need to water it down. We don't need to change it. We need to take it just as it is and share it with people who have yet to come to Christ. Share the love of Christ, the suffering of Christ. Help them to understand what this, quote, the world calls Easter season is all about. 
about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. Great time to share your faith with those around who have yet to hear the gospel of Christ. I pray that we would all take that opportunity in the coming weeks. Bless us, Lord, today. We thank you for your word. Pray that you would just bless us as we depart this place. and Bless our fellowship over in the other room. We thank you and praise you. We close with a song in Jesus' name. Amen.